Hello, you're listening to IndieWire's Very Good Television Podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizlet on Twitter. And I'm Ben T. Travers at Ben T. Travers on Twitter. And we're coming to you from the end days of August when television continues to roll out, but at a slightly more relaxed pace, which I'm not complaining about. Yeah, fine by me. It's a good time to catch up and then slowly discover new things as they come in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, I, I feel like it might be my favorite time of the season. Only marred by the fact that then we look forward at the at the fall season and all the stuff we have to cover there. Yeah, but you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself. I mean, it is a good time. We just finished the TCAs, so you can kind of relax for a bit. There's not a huge upcoming project coming up. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of shows, but, you know, you can kind of pick and choose those. So it'll, it'll be all right. Yeah, true enough. So right now, though, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about the future. We're gonna talk about the past, and this is kind of this is inspired by a show called a little show you might have heard of called Six Feet Under, which uh, per, which ha- had its series finale ten years ago this weekend. And Six Feet Under is a really interesting show. It came for HBO at a time when they I think they needed to diversify their drama content in a really important way. Like they had The Sopranos, they had The Wire. I believe they had the wire. I think I have that timeline right. And they they had like a lot of like male oriented crime stuff. They didn't really have like a full on family drama. And then Six Feet Under came along, and it had this really nice, quirky, premium cable vibe. Great acting. Total total example of prestige television. Yes, that was yes, that was a very good summary, Liz. Thank you. I should look into doing that. Spot on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, that show went on for how many seasons? Do you remember? I'm pretty sure it was five. I need to uh, double check this, but I remember somewhat suffering through five seasons of that show. <laughs> Do you watch all five? Yeah, I I finished it. I got through about three before I I started to feel a little iffy. Yeah, it was it was five seasons. I'm pretty sure after three was when it, it kind of lost me for good. But I still I closed out strong. It's what I do. Yes, you did it, man. And I think well, the the in the reason we bring it up is not to crap on it, but I think it's an interesting phenomenon that we don't talk about a lot, which is the idea, you know, well, you know, everyone has their favorite shows and shows they love and shows they consider great television, but it's a rare it's the rare show that is consistently great from beginning to end. And I think we came up with some example some interesting examples of other shows that technically do belong in the pantheon of great TV, but we have to hit with an asterisk across the board. Yeah, and it's also important to note that, I mean, a lot of things that have come out, I mean, Six Feet Under just ended, you said, like, 10 years, or 10, 10 year anniversary finale, and a lot of pieces have come out of late talking about how great the finale was and you know, all the things that it started and all of the, you know, the impact that it's had then, and it's using it as an example of one of the shows that actually did end really well. Um, it's very much a divisive series finale. I'm very much on the other side of the group that you know didn't appreciate it, but it does have its supporters. I think the shows that we're singling out, though, are almost universally agreed upon as at least somewhat of a, a falling off point, like either gradually or or just at the very end. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my own opinion of the Six Feet Under finale, which is that. I, I kind of stopped watching the show around season three about the same point you did. I think it was like the Nate abduction arc. Didn't Nate get like kidnapped? It was a Nate. It was no. It was uh, the br- other brother 
who got kidnapped. I don't remember names, but uh, yes. Michael C. Hall's character got kidnapped, and I remember that for some reason. I, I was out. I tapped out at that point. But I did go back and watch not even really the finale. I watched the last six minutes of the finale, of the series finale, and I loved it. It's one of my favorite ways to end a series ever. I thought it was beautiful. The song moved me. I cried because I did still have emotional attachment to all those characters, despite having tuned out their adventures for a little while. Yeah, I, I did not, but I, I recognize the impact that it's had, and I, I feel like it was a good usage for what the show was. It's just not, it didn't work for me. The show didn't work for me very well, so it did be hard for that ending to work. So, I mean, very much a subjective opinion on that one, but yeah, the, the, that structuring of it and your specific reaction, just seeing that, just seeing you know the actual ending of the ending, uh, I can see where that would that would work for a lot of people. So, yeah, you know. but I can tell you, like, I've I've maybe rewatched that sequence several times. I can't. I'm I'm not 100 percent positive. I've seen the entire final episode. I think I have, but it's been a while. No, I wouldn't pass a quiz on it. I can tell you that much. But <laughs> I do remember the ending. Indeed. So, Ben, what's another show that you feel like is a really great example of what we're talking about here? All right, well, I've set myself up really well to catch a lot of slack from all of our listeners with my first choice, because after, like, admitting that I'm not a big fan of Six Feet Under, which, by the way, our IndieWire community manager, Emily Buter, if she's listening to this, will kill me for, because she, I haven't told her yet, she's one of the biggest fans. Let's just wait to but, uh, find out if she actually listens to the podcast, and then we'll know. Like, yeah, great test. Great test for for Emily, so we'll find out. Uh, but for the rest of you, I think you're still going to be very upset with my first choice, which is Californication, which is not the same kind of example across the board, but one that I would argue has one the best first season of of a lot of shows. I mean, one of the best first seasons ever. Just a perfect arc, executed magnificently, very addictive television, very fun, but deep. Has a great central performance from David Duchovny and great supporting people around him. I really loved that first season, but as soon as it ended, I did wonder where in the hell are they going to go with this, and they had nowhere to go with it. Seasons two through seven, which I can't believe it lasted seven seasons, were just absolutely terrible. They, they kept circling around the same point, which was kind of a will-they-won't-they they romance of, of Hank and, and uh, oh man, I can't remember her name now. Natasha, um, the Natasha McElhorn yeah, character? Right. Yeah, her character, which I feel like I should know her name. Anyway, um, it just, they, they at, at times they tried to close the door on it and create new avenues for Hank, and they thought that might be interesting. They tried to play it off as almost like a, like a standard sitcom kind of thing where he'd just be put in weird situations and react to them, and you'd watch Hank do that, and it would be fun. And none of that really worked, and none of it achieved the same level of depth. And by the end of it, when, you know, spoiler alert, the two of them got together, it was like, well, this doesn't feel earned. It felt earned at the after season one, but after all of this, it's just being tacked on. So, so Californication, I love the first season, but man, it was just a like a cliff just dropped right off the edge of it. I mean, is there was there any changeover behind the scenes, production-wise, that would would account for that? As far as I can tell, no. I mean, it was the, the same creator and writer was behind all of it. I mean, Duchovny was a big influence as a producer and the star. Uh, they didn't really lose any of the main cast. It, it it really is one of those things where I feel like 
they wrapped it up too well after season one. They may not have planned for, or if they, I don't think they planned for more of it. I don't think they ever expect, they may have expected to get picked up, but they're like, well, we'll figure it out as it comes. And then they didn't realize just how well they'd done it the first time out. And that wrote themselves in, or wrote himself into a corner. Yeah, I mean... Um, Pepinos, I think is his name. Okay. I mean, the thing with Californication for me is that I never, I never hooked into it, and so I can't speak to the decline in quality. But it does seem like, you know, the will they or won't they, you can only push so long and so far if you don't really properly give it an arc. And so, if it sounds, it sounds for me, for me, the show always just kind of seemed like the David Duchovny has sex with young people, young, young women, and you know, the, you know, gallivants about show with occasional appearances by Rob Lowe and Dennis Leary. Yeah, and that's that's very much what the show became. And you know, if you're looking at the majority of it, you're going to give it uh, like an overall grade. That that's what you're going to talk about because that's what it was. But for that first season, uh, for as much emphasis was placed on his you know sexual adventures, uh, there was still this really solid core with his daughter and you know, the woman that he was heartbroken over, and that really kept it grounded, whereas it just spun off the rails as it kept trying to circle that same point. So it was a tough one, but uh, but again, at least there's the one scene. So, um, Liz, what about you? What, what's your first pick for, for the, the great shows that broke bad in a bad way? Yeah, I mean, not counting, not counting Six Feet Under. Uh, I think a big one for me is uh, a show that I don't think I'm going to get a lot of arguments on is Battlestar Galactica which, you know, is a seminal series for anyone who cares about sci-fi, launched in 2004, I believe, 2004, 2005-ish with the original miniseries, and then that was followed by what is genuinely held up to be as one of the greatest seasons of television of the 2000s. Uh, Season one of Battlestar is pretty much flawless. It has this incredible season premiere, and just the energy keeps going all the way through. It's a story about survival. It's a story about, you know, civilizations crumbling. It's a story about, you know, awesome people having space battles in space. Like, there's a lot to love about it, and it's full of incredibly hard, complicated decisions and so forth. And season two, I maintain, actually kind of keeps that keeps a good thing going. There's a lot... Season two is longer. Uh, it's actually an interesting early example of this phenomenon we see where a, season, a show launches strong with 13 episodes, and then gets expanded out. Season two got even split up. In fact, it's one of the first examples of sci-fi doing that, I think. Uh, they split it up into two parts uh but see the season two finale is crazy bonkers and then they come back for season three and season three is really tough going in terms of television it's basically um the humans have become without going too much into depth the humans have formed a new colony but this colony gets invaded by the evil robots that have been chasing them this whole time trying to eradicate the human race and so they're living under occupied rule and and this is by the way being produced in the thick of the in the thick of uh you know u.s operations in iraq and afghanistan the humans start becoming suicide bombers it is it is tough viewing and on a lot of levels but it's really good and it's really well executed and that keeps going through season three and then season three, midway through, just, you know, loses all momentum, never really recovers it. And then season four, 
maybe almost gets a little bit more energy back. Like the whole show is structured around like, you know, these people are from this, you know, this far off call, uh, far off, uh, you know, solar system of planets and those planets get destroyed. So they're, but then they had, uh, they get organized around this one central mission of we're going to go find this mythical planet we've heard of called earth. And we're going to, that's so it's all about that quest. And it, that season four gets more oriented around the quest, but it then kind of, it takes this really nihilistic turn towards the towards the midway through, and it doesn't really pull out of that. And the final two episodes are full of a lot of things that are very very controversial in retrospect. Are pretty dumb, arguably. Certainly, there were a lot of very loud, angry conversations had that night uh, with friends. And yeah, it's a. I mean, it was an amazing show to watch for its run, but the legacy of it is season one is really, really great, and there's a board game that's based off it that's also really fun to play. Actually, I've heard that too, which I, I wouldn't say I know a lot about board games, but I have definitely heard of the Battlestar Galactica one. Oh, it's I've great. I've heard very good things about the show in general, but I mean, I don't think I've ever had it broken down season by season for me like that. I, I, I wasn't really aware that it ended poorly. I just keep hearing, um, mainly from my parents, obviously. Like that. My dad is one of the biggest sci-fi fans you'll ever meet, and he is just, he loves this stuff. And he was pretty devoted all the way through, um, but I don't, I don't know his exact opinions on whether or not, like, if he, if he agrees 100% with you and the consensus of it. He, he sometimes just uh, kind of goes along with stuff that he's enjoyed from the beginning. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it did, did that have an example? Like, did you did you look into? I mean, was there somebody who left? Was there a writer's change? Was there like what happened with uh, with the? No, I mean, it, it was it's a pretty consistent writers uh, writers writing staff. I mean, not I can't speak to everyone below the line, but Ronald D. Moore was also with the show the whole time. I think it was just so. it was just like I think the thing with Battlestar was that it was just a very tough premise to execute over the course of this of four seasons and you know they didn't stick the landing like it's one of those things where you have to admire the achievement of it frankly like there's a lot of really impressive stuff that they were able to pull off and a lot of stuff that they tried that didn't work but you know that you it's it's not like they didn't try and you have to admire that effort even if it didn't it, even if it had its problems yeah absolutely i mean it, it, that's definitely not a reason to avoid a show like this I mean just because it's challenging and hard to do right you know you could end up with something like you're talking about with the first season that that is that good and that I mean if that's all you can get out of it and, and the second you know if you can get more than that out of it even then I mean all the power to you that, that's the point of this kind of creative endeavor so yeah I mean it was it, it, from from beginning to end it was an, it was always an ambitious show and that makes for far better television I think in the long run yeah, I completely agree. It's one of the things that draws me into and forgives a lot of flaws is, is that kind of ambition. If you can feel that they're trying something and it doesn't feel like they've given up and just, you know, thrown in a lot of plot devices or, or simple arcs or, or, you know, just very predictable things, then, you know, it, it makes for a better discussion about the television show, even if you're disappointed in the actual result. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that Ronald D. Moore did very deliberately set out to do when he started making the show is he wanted to make something that was essentially the antithesis to Star Trek Voyager, 
which is also a show. It's a show about which, if you don't remember your Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Voyager is a show also about a, a ship lost in unknown territory, struggling to survive. Except for some reason, it go everything seems to go really smoothly for everyone on Star Trek Voyager, and no really tough decisions ever have to get made, and no one ever dies, and the ship looks great from the beginning of season one to the end of season seven. And Ronald D. Moore worked briefly on Voyager. He was originally a produce, a major producer on Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, and his after after like basically doing like a few episodes of Voyager, he's like, "This is bullshit." And if I ever get the opportunity to make something like this show, I'm going to do it right. And so it was all about him wanting to make something new and different from the kind of sci-fi we'd seen before on television. That's great. It's a great place to start. Yeah. So how about you, Ben? What's your next pick? Uh, well, my next pick is another uh, universal favorite that I think everyone, especially in the new art community, just adores. I mean, it's just a... Uh, I mean, I get letters about this sort of thing yeah paper every day. letters in the mail uh, sure uh, yeah yeah in the mail I mean email no, it's, it's, it doesn't really communicate the passion that these people have for the show right. I'm, I'm making a pretty good every, decent guess at what you're picking right now yeah I, well of course I mean it's the OC like everybody loves the OC everybody remembers when when you know Ryan showed up and met Sandy for the first time and, and Sandy had to bring him out of jail just to keep him from getting shoved in the yard and then he got him back home and he didn't quite fit in but he saved Seth and everybody was happy about it started this big whirlwind romance with just, you know, a, a ridiculous person named Marissa but I mean, nobody liked her but still, it was, an, it was a very entertaining show absolutely addictive for its first season Yoga Lattes? Oh my god, Yoga, yoga Lattes? I mean, there's there's so many horrible lines from it, and so many just instant classic moments. I mean, Chris Mika was was just a brilliant invention of the well, not an invention of the show, but a popularization of that invention, courtesy of the show. Um, I mean, there's so much stuff to latch onto that, and because it's a soap opera, you almost want to initially just feel like, oh, this could last forever. Like they could just keep kind of creating these dynamics and push it to all of these fun new levels. But instead, after that first season, which was stretched out for a long period of time because it was kind of a surprise hit, and then they turned it into, you know, keep the ratings going, like, stretched a little bit. You, know, you get so many of those good episodes, but then as soon as they started season two, they made so many just horrible mistakes. They tried to make it darker. They thought that was some, some way the answer to their writer's issues. They uh, they inserted all these new characters where we didn't need them. It was already a pretty big cast, and they had a lot of you know ways to go with people who were already there. They didn't need to make you try to care about some idiot like Zach, who was just boring, plain-faced swimmer, uh, or sorry, not a swimmer, uh, water polo player. I mean, it, it just didn't really work out. And then add on to that the problem of the Ryan-Marissa relationship, which is that everyone likes Ryan and everyone wants Ryan to be happy, and we understand why Ryan might be in love with Marissa because he's young and, and kind of dumb and she's hot and that's okay. Marissa's a terrible character, so it, it kind of screwed him up for a while until they killed her off in season three, which was the best part of season three, but season three was just atrocious other than that. So, I mean, it, it really just, it proved the point that even soap operas, which get a lot of flack, nighttime soaps, uh, catch a lot of crap because uh, they use a lot of the same kind of tropes and characters over and over again. They're still really hard to do well, and they're hard to do well for a long period of time, even if they're not twist-dependent like uh, the Shonda Shonda Land shows, 
Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into making them good. And even if they, you know, this one was the classic example, just burning as hot as possible and burn out quickly after that. So, I don't know. The OC is one of my favorite shows of all time because of season one, but I'm not going to defend two or three. I'll defend four. Four was fine, but it was only fine after watching it bottom out for the last two years. Wasn't season three the one where Marissa had a lesbian storyline with Olivia Wilde? No, that was two. That was actually in the second season where the ratings were really dipping after, you know, the explosion of season one, and they tried to save it with, of, you know, of course, lesbianism, because that's going to draw on all the, all the teens. So, yep. did not work. But that was Olivia Wilde? I'm trying to remember. That was Olivia Wilde. Yep. Okay, so that, at least it gave us Olivia Wilde, who's great. Yeah, it probably set her up to, you know, appear on House, and then that was also kind of a disaster. But, you know, she's out there now doing better things, so that's good. Oh, man, House could also be on this list. It's not... I don't know if it's quite the paragon of quality that we are looking for, but I liked House no, a lot. Yeah. Yes. yeah, me too. I like, I, and there's, there's a few shows like that that kind of start off promising and, and have a, like some good shows and good episodes and good seasons, but then eventually pitter out even from that. So, yeah, definitely trying to talk about the, the, the best of the best, which is why we had to mention those of course, the, what, what what list would be in what list would be complete without the OC on it? I mean, maybe like a list of just the worst series ever or unimportant shows for the the millennium culture. I, I mean, stuff like that. But you know, only bad things. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my I'm gonna I'm gonna de- I'm gonna take us over to Mind Pick, which is also another teen drama because Lord knows you can't have enough of those teen dramas. Uh, and I can't. Yeah, well, Ben, have you watched Veronica Mars? I have watched Veronica Mars. And when we can't we all agree that season one is brilliant, season two is pretty good, and season three kind of takes some wrong turns? I would I would agree with that. I'm not. I haven't seen all of it, so I don't want to be the authority here. But that, that's your role, so just just go with it. I mean, that's I mean that's basically that's basically that's what it breaks down to. The thing with Veronica Mars is that it. The first season is so well constructed in terms of both all the character relationships, all the murder mystery elements, you know, the arc works and the big reveal at the end of season one also works. And season two has a a little bit more ambition, has a, 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 a few more complications, and it ends up kind of going awry, I think. Especially because at that point, this is actually an interesting period of television where fans are actually you know, much more vocally communicating with creators, you know, via message boards and whatnot. And the two major romantic, all, all the all the major love interests of the show were under a lot of scrutiny and pressure fr- by fans. And as a result, it's just like, you can tell that at some point, the importance of making sure that all of the, all of the mystery elements are working in cohesion together takes a slight backseat to let's work out all the nuances of this relationship drama in kind of a blunt way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, it's not an easy thing to do. And I mean, Veronica Mars was kind of under the gun from the beginning because it was kind of a cold hit that people enjoyed, but was never like a rating dominant kind of show. And I mean, sometimes, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the structure of it well enough to say if they were trying things, if they were if they were experimenting 
kind of like the OC was to just try to you know, gain ratings points or, or you know, keep themselves on the air. But uh, you know, I mean, you got sometimes you have to try that sort of thing. Well, they they were certainly no 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 stranger to stunts of some sort, especially casting. Um, I mean, they, they Paris Hilton plays a serious has a has a significant guest star appearance in one episode, um, in season one. Uh, Kevin Smith shows up in season two, but that was just and Kevin Smith and Joss Whedon both show up in speaking roles, just because they were big fans of the show. Which yeah. not that not that stunt casting Kevin Smith is really like an entreatment. No, I mean it, it, they they always they they definitely played with those elements, but they also managed to make sure that the show stayed relatively true to itself it's it's a, not a great i think the problem is like i want to be able to say that the season three of veronica mars was as great as season one and it simply wasn't and i think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that it's a tough thing to it's a tough it's a tough egg to crack where did people end up landing on the movie i remember reading some positive reviews especially when it uh debuted itself at southwest but i i never really grasped the full fan reaction to it. I think the movie, I like the movie a lot, but it's, it, I think I like the movie a lot because it definitely, it played as, I don't want to call it fan service because it's not really fan service. There's some interesting stuff that happens in it that's tough. And it also, I think, what I think it does really well is it sets up the fact, it sets up the concept of Veronica Mars as an ongoing franchise once again which it can be now, it can be just based on more movies, more books. Uh, there's a whole book series that's happening right now that's actually not bad. It's, you know, pulp kind of, they're kind of pulp detective mysteries starring all your favorite characters. What's wrong with that? Nothing, nothing at all. Yes. Sounds great. So, I mean, I mean, really, I can't even, Veronica, maybe Veronica Mars isn't even necessarily belong on this list, except for the part where season three, and I say this is someone who defends Piz. I'm a Piz defender. I'm not saying I'm not saying he's great. I'm not saying he and Veronica belong together. I'm just saying he's not as bad as everyone says he is. That said, as even as a Piz apologist, uh, I'm not saying season three is as good as season one. Well, it's an interesting point too because you know when when you have an an addition onto the end of something, you know whether it's, it's later in the run or it's a new season or a new. Uh, or a movie or, or like some sort of special like whether or not that's the ending that you remember or that's how you think of the ending of the show I mean it, it definitely affects it but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a, a, a speaking to people's reaction to, to, to the TV series itself so yeah. I mean it, it has an impact but it's hard to gauge kind of where and how people include that in their analysis of the show itself yeah so Ben, what's uh, what I think? I think this is probably your last pick. What is it? Uh, uh, last, uh, last, last, last example, uh, not pick. Like we're not like celebrate. This isn't like a celebration, I guess. Yeah, we're not we're not reveling in failure right now. We're trying to celebrate. I, I, at least for celebrating anything, it's the first seasons or the early episodes of these shows. Um, and that's uh, that, that's leaning towards what I'm about to talk about. Which there's there's other shows out there that definitely fit the bill more than what I'm going to discuss. I thought about putting a killing on here because that's a very classic example of people who really liked that first season and then there was a huge drop off as, as for various reasons coming in after that. But I mean, that, that's kind of been talked to death. So I'd, I'd rather talk about something a little newer, which is actually only in its first season. It's about to start the second season, which is Showtime's The Affair. Um, Liz and I both reviewed that together uh, episode by episode during season one. 
and I was pretty uh, pretty big fan of it to, from the beginning. I thought it made a very strong case for itself early on. Uh, it has great acting in it. I mean, every one of those core four cast members are just at the top of their game. Um, the opening song is something that will just hook you back into the spirit of the show every time it starts over, so I feel like it would be a very good show to binge watch. Um, the, the setting of it is fairly unique. The, the, the development of it is, is fairly unique. The, the, the structuring, especially with them, you know, kind of having the untrustworthy narrator card uh, is, is great. Like, it's a wonderful device. But that season finale was just the worst. I, uh, I, I, I was so utterly disappointed with that. It went in such a melodramatic angle that I, I couldn't stay on board. It, it felt like whiplash after what was pretty solid grouping of nine episodes, and it's just cast this whole shadow of skepticism on the series as an entirety for me, and it's not something that I'm going to avoid when season two begins. I'm definitely going to, to tune in and check out what's coming, but at the same time, I, I just have such a massive doubt that wasn't there before. I mean, it, I just, I don't know, that, that, that finale for me was such a disaster that it, it barred a lot of what was trying to happen for the rest of the series. Yeah, my reaction to it wasn't nearly so negative at all, but um, that's actually, I think that part of that might be by, by virtue of the way we were reviewing it, which was that I was paying a lot, more, I was paying pretty strict attention to everything to do with the Allison storyline because that was my part of the review and you were focused on the Noah part of the review and I think the, I think the Noah section we could argue is the worst part of, of that final episode yeah and I, I mean I think so too and I think he has he had the weaker elements of the show and I think the only way to watch his side of the event and enjoy it is to almost treat everything he's saying like bullshit which is investing in that character as a bad person who's basically lying to you for most of the series. If you can do that and, and appreciate that side of things without ever knowing whether or not that's true, that's fine. But I enjoyed much more of kind of to towing the line where you didn't know who was saying what rather than trying to make a decision for them. And then by the end of it, there's just no way they're going to be able to come back and tell us all of the little moments that were true and which ones were false. They're not going to try to do that sort of thing. I felt like they were kind of making some sort of promise towards that at the beginning, especially with them being sat down in an interrogation room. I was like, okay, the truth is going to come out, but I'm not so sure it will now. And even if it does, I don't think I'd be satisfied, especially with trying to believe this guy is a great writer and a lot of the writing in the show in particular at the end, in that final episode just was such a massive drop-off. Yeah, I mean, well, portraying writer, great writers on screen and like having them write the great stories, is that that's a, like an impossible challenge. You're always going to pick it apart. Yeah, but it's always better. Like this one's inviting you into that story by watching kind of the origins of its development or believing that he's writing it and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing kind of his version of the story through this and and that would just be terrible writing. So, so like if you avoid that, if you say he's doing it and provide kind of out of context examples that it can work, you can buy into that idea. But the way that they've structured it this way, just it doesn't allow for that anymore. I mean, the thing I will say is at TCA's, I think I think the key to getting back on board with 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 uh with the affair, <coughs> sorry about that, is 
to really embrace the idea that there is no such thing as subjective truth which is something that they firmly believe, essentially. At this point, they there's no one right answer. No one has the complete story. And they're deliberately throwing in random elements, almost like, you know, improvisationally that you know, make that separate each, each, each version of the narrative. And this is actually, I, I got a chance to talk to Joshua Jackson about this. And we have a, we had a, we have an interview that'll run uh, close back in October when the show premieres, but he, that's a big thing for him. Like, um, I'll say that in season two, we get different perspectives on events. And that means that you're seeing Joshua Jackson play a completely different version of his character than we've seen previously. And, the question of you know is this the real version of Cole comes up and he's like no it's there's it's just who I think he is and whether or not that how accurate that is to the reality that doesn't exist. Well, I feel like that's I feel like that's an actually kind of a I don't want to call it a cop out. It's an interesting idea to explore, but so far that like the ending execution of it and my idea of how that would be executed based on what we saw in season one is still just hard to buy into. I mean, there are objective truths about people and objective truths about what they do. I I need a few of those to keep in to keep being invested in these this couple's life because if if the worst is true, then it's it's not as engaging anymore. Like it's not as you're, you're not as empathetic with these characters. He's just a kind of a talented writer who slept with you know he slept outside of his marriage and that's not as intriguing a story to me as, as the other elements that were at play trying to make it more understandable I, I don't know there's, there's definitely ways they can go with it I'll watch it out of curiosity I guess I'm just too skeptical at this point well I think I think you kind of hit on the head when you said that like the the promise of the detective scenes from the very beginning were that there is some version of the story that we can embrace as 100% true. And that is a promise that has been thus said, oh, we didn't really promise you that. All those scenes, all those scenes with the detective, all those scenes that take place essentially in the future, they don't really count as all, they, they also are not really necessarily the truth. And that's, that, that is not, that is kind of a betrayal of premise, I think. I mean, it's not a huge betrayal of premise for me. I think it's just like, if the show was did strip out all of the police stuff, if it was just the two characters were seeing two different sides of the same story, what would you think of that? Uh, I don't know. I think that you need... I think that if you're going to play around with the idea that the idea of self-perception versus someone else's perception of you. Like, if you're going to play around with that idea, I think you need to be confronted with that more. I don't feel like these characters are confronted with the difference between what they think of themselves and what others think of them, or what a specific other thinks of them. And even if we're seeing it, if they're not engaging with it, I don't feel like that idea is as engaging as... Uh, as being is as, as being analyzed as much as it could be, I feel like it's it's kind of more of a cop out to keep more drama coming in. But as they do that, the investment of the audience just decreases by the second. So I don't know. I don't know. That's where I'm at anyway. I I don't pretend to speak for everyone. Yeah, but I, think, <laughs> so, I, I think it's a, I think it's a good way. Of putting there it. they go. I think it's a good way of putting it. Like the fact that we're not 
addressing the the inaccuracies is 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 an interesting conundrum, I suppose. Um, but I feel like I mean I think the point is is that you know I think there's I think the point of all of this I, is that you know we learn to forgive shows I think hopefully we, we sometimes we can learn to forgive shows for their for for the fact that they're not as good the whole whole way through like certainly I'm currently rewatching Veronica Mars season one right now and God it's still so good it's just such good television. And maybe that's because I've been away from it for the right amount of time. I haven't really dug into it in a while. So it's just like, it's fresh. I'm remembering things as they're happening. Like, oh my God, this part is so good, so sad, etc. Um, so, I mean, it, I mean, there. I think there are shows we've, you know, can you rewatch the first season of Californication and still enjoy it? Yeah, and I actually, I've, I've tested that theory a number of times. Um, with Californication, I did it right before the series ended because I was like, am I just, did I just get screwed up? Did I just have an emotional investment in something that wasn't there? And then, you know, it, it just developed over time and I changed my influence. But no, that, that first season holds up. The OC is honestly one that I've, I've looked at from just about every angle possible because I revisit that fairly regularly. And um, I've got a good group of friends that's always sending me clips or videos or little, you know, quotes or gifts or whatever. And every time, it, it really does hold up. It's something that, that really, really works as it is just beautifully. It's, it's a beautiful little story. And if you looked at season one, if, if you looked at both of those seasons in and of themselves, Californication would be so much better with just the one season and the ending would be so much better. It'd be the same story, but it would be a much better version of it, a condensed version of it. And if you look at the OC, if it ended from, you know, after the first season ended, uh, I mean, it's a better show. It's a sadder show. It's a different show. I appreciate that they, they gave me a different ending to that because I, I don't feel like that's fully engaged with, with what the show is going for. But, I mean, you could argue it's more realistic and it's definitely more uh, impactful. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely worth doing. Like, if you guys have kind of examples of these yourself that you're thinking of, you know, go back and watch that first season, second season, whatever, you know, however far you think it deserves to go, and uh, see where you're at today. Yeah, see, what, see, see how much you can forgive. Yeah, good way to put it. Very good. Um, so, we're, let's, let's wrap things up. Ben, what was the, last, the best thing you watched last week? Uh, I think I've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm going to bring it up again because it's really just not getting a lot of play. Uh, I've watched Public Morals twice through, or not all the way through the, the four episodes I've been given, but twice now at least for the pilot episode, and uh, it's really just great TV. I, I can't recommend uh, the show highly enough. It's going to be available online uh, starting Wednesday this week, um, so go ahead and check those out for yourself if you don't get TNT. Um, if you're a fan of Edward Burns, even if you're just a fan of Edward Burns from Saving Private Ryan, I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy the show. So I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of it. It's on my list to check out, definitely. Yeah, it know, is. I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to call. I'm going to say that Public Morals is also the next thing I'm looking forward to watching. Ooh, good choice, Liz. Yeah. Um. So, and meanwhile, the best thing I watched uh, last week was I finally sat down with the first two episodes of You're the Worst Season 2. We have screeners available. 
And if I wasn't already looking forward to that show's return, I definitely am now. It's so charming. It's just the same energy that we had in season one, but with new complications and new angles and probably some new horrible things that are about to happen to horrible people. Yeah, I mean, if, if horrible things will happen, it may be horrible things they do or horrible things that happen to them, but either way, you're absolutely right. And I, that show's fantastic. I can't, I've seen those two episodes too, and I can't wait to see more. It's one of the best comedies on TV and, uh, and well deserving of all the critical adulation it's gotten. I'm curious, I mean, the, given how TV works and how relationships on TV tend to work, what, what what would you bet at this point that uh, the our, our lead duo will be broken up by the end of the season? You know, it's tough because the, the interviews they've done, including with us, have kind of talked about how they're going to hit just about every relationship beat, uh, which would include probably a substantial breakup. They've already broken up in season one, um, but it was before they were as committed as they are now. So, I mean... I'd actually want, I want to say no. I want to say not by the end of the season. Maybe something they'll address in hopeful season three or four or something, but I'm, I'm hoping for something a little bit different uh, by the end of season two than just watching their, not, I enjoy watching their struggle, but not, maybe not watching it lead to some sort of failure. Interesting. I'm not even, I'm, I don't even really want to take, take the bet. I just kind of wanted to throw out, throw out the question. Ooh, well, we'll come up with another sandwich bet. Yep. Or accent bet, as, as, as the case may be. Yeah. <laughs> the next bet that Ben and I do, uh, the loser has to do this entire podcast in an accent. Yeah, so get ready. That's going to happen at some point. I, I, feel like we, I feel like we have a few bets out there that I'm not keeping track of properly. I think the major one is just the Woody Allen show. I've, I, we've bet that we've bet a sandwich that Woody Allen, the Woody Allen show, will never see the light of day. Yeah, but I mean, so that means that means that that wouldn't be official. Like we wouldn't have to pay up either way until it's like until the day it airs on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I've got That's the I've got, I've got the losers end of that bet because you know. Like we could be sixty years old, and that show could premiere on that on Amazon, and you could be like, "Pay up." <laughs> I will definitely call you, and we'll record a very special episode of the podcast while you eat your sandwich. Because we'll have podcasts in the year twenty thirty five or whatever that is. Right, right. Um. So then, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Oh, I mean, it's the leftovers, <laughs> season two. Son of a bitch. Uh, I figured that was obvious. I know. I, I know. I should. I should probably make it a requisite. We have a requisite that we say these sort of things. But, but yeah, leftover season two for sure. It's gonna be a really guys know the day that Ben has gotten embargoed screeners for the leftover season two when he watches them and the thing he says is not the leftover season two. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'd st- it would still be what I look for. They can't give me screeners through like season twelve, so I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Oh man, season twelve of the leftovers. What fun they'll have. Oh yeah, well by then it'll be a comedy. <laughs> well, I think that's about all we have time for today. Um as always you can find our writings on the IndieWire on IndieWire.com. Uh you can find reviews, features, interviews with all of your favorite people who are cool to talk to and uh, all the sh- about all the shows that you should be paying attention to. 
Yes, and absolutely tune into our other IndieWire podcasts, including Eric Cohen and Ann Thompson on Screen Talk, as well as our editor-in-chief, Dana Harris, talking to all the important people in showbiz on the IndieWire Influencers podcast. Uh, I believe that's the first time I've said that right on the first try, so you're welcome. Well done. Um, but yeah. Yeah, on the, the last episode of IndieWire Influencers, Dana talked to uh, Jonathan Ames, and he did. Yeah. He recorded his famous Harry call, which is how every uh, table read of Blunt Talk would open. And if you have not listened to that already, you should because it's amazing. Yes, yes. Even I mean, there's so much more to hear on the, on the podcast, obviously, but that is just that is. I mean. Great stuff, just great stuff. It'll change your life. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, as, as a sandwich, but with all of you, that your life will change. Uh, otherwise, she'll send you a sandwich. Okay, that's not good. <laughs> let's, let's end before I owe any more people sandwiches. Um, I, you can find Ben on at Ben T. Trathers on Twitter. Right, and I think you can find Liz at Lizlet with an I and an E on the Twitters. Yes. So we'll be back next week talking yet again about television, imaginably. And in the meantime, keep watching television. Mm-hmm.